Oh, hi. It's Crystal here. You know, from RuPaul's Drag Race UK. And, mmm, Dean Kane in Lois and Clark definitely made me queer. Too bad he turned out to be such a rabid, gun-toting Republican. Welcome to The Things That Made Me Queer, the podcast that delves into the queer experience using the items and moments that shaped us. Each week, my special guest will bring five items to the table that help shape the person they are today, and we will use them to plunge deep into their queer story. A little note on this podcast before we continue... I use the word queer a lot here. For me, it's a fabulous umbrella term which encompasses the gorgeous entirety of the LGBTQIA community. For me, queer is a brilliant way of saying not straight. But this word may not feel right for you, and that is totally okay. Feel free to mentally substitute any word that makes you feel gorgeous. Also, just some food for thought. Did you know that gay was also originally used as a slur before it was reclaimed and became the norm? And that people have been reclaiming queer since as early as the 1910s. The more you know. Anyway, on with the show. Right, I am so excited about today's guest. In addition to being a legendary and iconic drag performer, they're also a filmmaker, events producer, and a cult movie historian. Their iconic Midnight Mass series, which started in 1998, ran for 12 years and made them a San Francisco powerhouse. And their theater productions and parodies have toured the world. I recently saw her in London in a brilliant production of Drag Becomes Her. And in addition to all of that, she is probably the only person in the world who has seen Showgirls more times than I have. Direct on the line from San Francisco, it's Peaches Price. Hi, Peaches. Hi, how are you? So good, thank you. So great to be chatting. Well, I've, I'm so glad that you reached out to me. It's wonderful to virtually meet you. Likewise, thank you for making the time. And I know we spoke briefly yesterday and we agreed that... Um, the appropriate salutation in these times is is the British one. Y'all right, babes? <laughs> That's right. Are you all right? Y'all right. Are you okay? <laughs> you okay? <laughs> so are you okay? <laughs> we over here, we say, how are you? And in 2020, it almost seems like um, inappropriate to ask that because, you know, we're none of us are really doing well, per se. But if you're <laughs> asking someone, are, are you okay? That seems more appropriate. Yeah, so instead of how are you, we should go with how are you coping? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you're in San Francisco. How, how are things? How's, how's it all feeling? Um, you know, all things considered, uh, I'm just really grateful that, you know, uh, my partner and I are uh, getting along. <laughs> <laughs> and that we, um, you know, we can afford to pay our rent and, you know, we're, we're not going to starve anytime soon. And the people uh, in our life uh, m m more 
so than not are doing okay. Um, on the other hand, you know, I did recently, we just lost a really great queen here in San Francisco, uh, a dear friend of mine, yeah, Peggy Legs. Um, and, you know, it's on the heels of losing um, Lady Red, who was another friend of mine. And, you know, it's that thing where mm-hmm. even right now with it not being COVID in either of those cases, it just is such a year of loss, you know? Yeah. Um, and that for me is the hardest part. It's like the, the wearing the mask and quarantining and all of that's okay, but actually losing people and, and knowing you won't see them on the other side, that's been awful. So yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I've been very fortunate that yeah, so far it hasn't touched me in a direct way beyond like, you know, all of my plans and my earnings and things like that. But right. there hasn't been that realness of like someone I'm really close to has died. Um, that must be really, yeah, really peculiar. Yeah. I'm glad that you've got the support of a partner and you've got someone that you're living with and it's, that's going well. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I don't want me to be a Debbie Downer right at the beginning of your show. No, <laughs> I think it's, it's good. It's good to be honest. And if anything, like 2020 is just about like, you know, we're all going through some shit and um, we should just, yeah, to just be honest about it. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, I think we're all going to be able to use this as, you know, uh, creative gasoline. It's it's really like in, in dire times, um, you know, the artists and the creatives really rise to the challenge because we're motivated by anxiety and sadness and darkness. And, you know, we need to make make each other laugh and we need to make other people laugh. And so, you know, there is the sort of flip side that when we can actually get back out onto the stage again, um, some people are worried that things like theater and bars and nightlife won't come back for a while. And I actually think, you know, theater and drinking and celebrating are all things that were around, you know, the last time there was a pandemic and mm-hmm. they recovered just fine. So, you know, I think on, on the mm-hmm. other side of this, yeah. I do feel for all of you girls that are young, Yeah, the young queens are being really brilliant when it comes to evolving new ways to perform. So absolutely. And can I just bless you for calling me young? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but I totally know what you mean. And I, we will see like a big dearth in like the Queens that were starting out this year or that have been kind of toying with drag for the last couple of years mm-hmm. and maybe are taking this as a sign of like, uh, I can't do this and are just going to focus their attention elsewhere. Right. I think we'll see that in years to come. Um, but I also think that us cockroaches that managed to to hold on, um, yeah, you're going to see better things from us to come in the future. Because uh, yeah, what you were saying about, you know, eating anxiety for breakfast, like I feel, I feel like I'm being so much more um, intentional with this, the work that I'm doing now. And yeah. like everything is... Because everything, there's like a focus on anything that you do. It means that whenever you do something, it's like really intentional and really, yeah, I'm really putting a lot of time and care into things. Whereas before I maybe was just kind of scattergunning, just spaffing things against the walls and hoping for the best. Um, Absolutely. So that's been interesting. Yeah, I think you're, that, that's such a great way to describe what we're going through now. It's like, wow, we actually have the time to do more but there's less to do, right? So the mm-hmm. things that we are doing, we can actually kind of put a different focus on than we're used to. Totally. And that that's a good thing, you know? 
I actually was going through like a bit of a, a crisis before COVID, not, not right before, but about a year and a half ago, I was doing too much, like was traveling too much, was touring too much, was, you know, I would be, I would be doing a show on the road while writing the next show right. and having, you know, uh, internet meetings with my crew in San Francisco about a show that was on the heels of one I was on the road. And I was losing my mind. I wasn't enjoying what I do anymore. And, you know, uh-huh. um, and so I had actually made the intentional decision to pull back. Now, I did not intend to pull back this much. <laughs> <laughs> what have you done, Peaches? <laughs> Is it my fault? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> I totally know what you mean. This podcast is really all about talking about the things that shaped your queer identity. Um, and I think that you have brought along some items for me. So every episode, a guest brings on a person, a place, a piece of music or an album, a film or TV show and a wild card. And then we shuffle those up into chronological order and um, use them to kind of talk about your your queer backstory. Okay. Are you ready to get into it? I am. Yeah. And I love this concept. I'm glad you're doing this. It's very smart. Oh, thank you. I'm excited. I'm flattered. So I can't wait to get into it. Yeah. Because here are the things that made you queer. Film or TV series. First up, we've got uh, your film or TV series. And you have chosen Elvira's movie Macabre. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So tell me, before we get into Elvira, where where are we in the world and um, how old are you? Set the scene. Well, uh, I grew up in um, Maryland uh, on the East Coast uh, in the U.S. Um, and Maryland, where I grew up, it's a, a small town called Annapolis. It's where the U.S. Naval Academy is located. It's sort of the sailing capital of the world. So it's on the Chesapeake Bay. And it's very preppy and you know, kind of conservative. Um, And it's between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. So it's like a 20-minute drive to either city. Got it. Um, That being said, when I was a kid uh, in the suburbs and just completely, you know, um, what's the word? I wasn't very inspired by my surroundings. And... um, Mm. Is it quite like white picket fancy? Kind of, yeah. It's it's sort of like... um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 except more maybe uh, obnoxiously generic, you know, like it doesn't even have <laughs> it doesn't even have the charm of white picket fences, you know. Um, yeah. Got it. So I grew up there, and um, you know, like a lot of kids who grew up in the eighties, I was you know partially raised by television, mm-hmm. um, and you know, watched a lot of TV and rented a lot of VHS tapes. Um, but even before I can remember like HBO or VHS tapes, I remember being a really little kid uh, in the earlier 80s and must have been her first, you know, syndicated movie macabre. It would come on TV and she would, and Elvira would show these old um, cheesy horror movies, you know, and, and not only was I completely fascinated by her, I was also fascinated by, you know, the films where the, the, the special effects were really mm-hmm. cheesy and, um, you know, the monsters were really over the top. And I don't think I saw it as a child as camp or kitsch. I actually genuinely was entertained by these, these films, you 
know, and, and, and completely enamored by her, like immediately attracted to her. Yeah, she's such um I mean, basically you had no chance. You were raised by a drag queen. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, when I I, I I realize now, and that's why I think the concept of your show is so funny. I didn't realize until I was much, much older that so much almost everything I liked was queer. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, culturally or, you know, it was somehow related to my queerness. And I have a gay brother who actually wasn't necessarily the same way, although he did love Madonna. He really loved Madonna. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but, you know, he played sports and he, you know, he, he like, you know, he liked GI Joe and stuff like that growing up, like stuff I would never have liked, you know, Um, you know, like anything that was gendered, you know, for boys, I typically, wasn't interested in so same yeah yeah i think i think we fought like we're instantly drawn to those things and i don't i don't know why it is and i'm hoping as the series progresses i'm gonna hear from other people and maybe we'll start to figure out the why but um i i was a madonna gay and i remember i remember seeing madonna at probably like age seven (laughs) six doing uh the music video for express yourself and i was like oh okay well that's what i'm gonna be when i grow up like and it was just like a, a trajectory from there like there was no it was just obvious to me yeah and and you look at it now and you realize um how just gay it is you know all these <laughs> you know fashion model muscle men you know with with dripping with sweat and and fake grief yeah. you know cranking i mean what are they doing like it's so ridiculous and this diva you know walking around with gorgeous gowns and perfectly quaffed hair it's like and the milk in the oh, in the saucer the hat and the you know it's just that music oh. video you 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 know, for anyone to rewatching it, for me, it was that era as well. Mm-hmm. But it was like a prayer because I was growing up in Catholic school. And that was really when she, that music video, you know, she was banned um, from her Pepsi contract because they, you know, Pepsi was so pissed off that she had done this thing in front of burning crosses and kissed a black saint. So it was the same era. But for me, it was like, oh, my God like a prayer was so great because it pissed off Catholics. Yeah. Perfect. And I guess it's this, kind of the same with Elvira, I guess, like ostensibly she's this like sexy lady, but like, I wonder if any men at the time were watching her, watching that and being like, Oh my God, Elvira is so hot. Or if it was really just the gays. Oh no, 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 they were. And they I were, that they, I, and I know that for a fact because you know, later in life, I've had the pleasure of being able to grow up and and meet with and work with a lot of my idols. And mm. um, having gone on the road with Cassandra, um, who is Elvira, uh, there is a very specific thing about the men, specifically the men that approach her with enthusiasm. And I was kind of blown <laughs> away at the difference. So when I would host an event, it was typically queer men coming up and just worshiping her. Like, you know, she was the, she was the living, you know, Mae West or something yeah. like just so fierce and much like Mae West, you forget that this campy, brilliant creature that we all worship is actually worshiped by heterosexual men for a totally different reason. As a sex icon. As a sex icon. And so going to like, 
uh, a convention. We would go to horror conventions together. And I remember once we were at one in Indianapolis. So like middle America. Mm -hmm. And these men were horrified by me. Like I was the scariest thing at the convention, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, there's people dressed up as like Leatherface, right? Oh, but these right, men man. are ter terrified of me, won't even look at me, and then come up to her, and I shit you not, more than once, try to tell her how important she was to them as a kid. And what you realize they're stuttering on about is that they masturbated to her. Yeah. And, you know, when you... <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, some of them are more subtle than others. I mean, it, get, it gets to the point where you're like, dude, you are so, this is so awkward and inappropriate. But for yeah. straight men, you know, their sexual awakening is a big part of, you know, and they're literally telling her like, yeah, I used to jerk off to your poster, you know. Yeah, yeah I had a lot of good times with your poster. I mean, a lot <laughs> of good times with your poster. People make those connections and it's hilarious. Do you remember... Any of the films in Elvira's show, like, or was it more about her? You know, honestly, it was more about her I, because I, I remember watching the movies and being kind of fascinated by them. Um, but I wasn't as, it wasn't, I wasn't tuning in for the movies as much as I was tuning in to see her and her set and her cheesy, stupid jokes, yeah. which, you know, honestly, uh, probably lots of the sexual innuendo and stuff went over <laughs> my head. But, uh, but then there was also a lot of her jokes that were for, you know, 10 year olds, you know, yeah. um, and, and the sort of, the, you know, she was constantly making spooky puns out of things um, and all of that stuff. I just, you know, I, I just loved her so much. You know, we're attracted to the creativity and, and exercising our imagination. And then the other part of it's like, you know, we are Dorothy. Like, we want to get the fuck out of Kansas and we would rather be in Oz. And so mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff represents the fantasy of, you know, another kind of world out yeah, there. Yeah, it's escapism. And it's just, we have no idea what we're doing because we're five years old but um yeah right right um well that actually moves us on quite nicely to your next item the next thing that made you queer is your place and you've put morbid manner which i'm not familiar with so tell me all about morbid manner <laughs> okay so morbid manner was i grew up uh spending summers at a at a resort town it's a very um East Coast beach town kind of classic. And we had a place on the boardwalk. And the boardwalk was that classic kind of boardwalk, um, you know, fantasy experience. Very trashy, uh, very East Coast. Um, mm -hmm. And at the end of the boardwalk were these rather, you know, uh, substantial amusement parks, you know, there were the, that had been there for years, I mean, decades. And so they had these old attractions. And one of them was a, a ride through dark ride that was called the haunted house. And I loved that. And it was made by this guy, Bill Tracy, who's this dark ride creator uh, from the fifties and sixties. And that place is still there to this day. You can still go on the haunted house in ocean city. Wow. Um, but the, other haunted attraction was a giant walkthrough house that looked like the psycho house, like Norman Bates's house, but yeah, but big, like even bigger. And it was called Morbid Manor. And these kids, these 80s sort of, you know, goth teenagers, you know, who were clearly into Susie Sue and, yes. and stuff like that. 
uh, they were they worked there. So they were they'd all wear these ghoul costumes and paint their faces and scare the shit out of, you know, Baltimore, you know, resort visitors. And I was obsessed, you know, because that haunted house, Morbid Manor, it totally represented a more hardcore adult version of the haunted mansion. Yes. You know? And it was scary. I mean, people, they had, of course, the person at the end with the chainsaw that would chase oh you out. Oh my God. The audience <laughs> came out a coffin, like the, the, the side of the building had a giant coffin on it and the doors would pop open and people would come out screaming. And I would just sit as a kid and my parents would leave me on a bench and let me just watch Morbid Manor for hours while the rest of the family went and rode the rides because all I wanted to do was stare at Morbid Manor and like watch, watch people, the people go in and out screaming. <laughs> yes. And get this. This is how fucked up I was. I would buy grease paint makeup, like clown makeup kits, and put on the makeup like the, like the kids. But I was a kid. I was like little. I wasn't even a teenager. Um, and I would scare people on the boardwalk. I also had a werewolf mask that I would I would scare people on the boardwalk in front of our um, building. And sometimes, this is so bizarre, I would buy a ticket to Morbid Manor and then go inside and put on makeup, like leave my group and hide inside the attraction and see how long I could stay in there without being discovered by another employee. Wow. You know, like, and, and scare people. <laughs> You're not believing any of this fantasy. You want to be the one creating the fear. There you go. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's funny. I believed it enough that if I weren't behind the scenes, I actually would get terrified. I still right. to this day, like, can watch a horror movie especially if I'm alone or something and, and actually l- allow the horror movie to kind of take over. And if I go to a haunted attraction to this day, I'm like the first queen to be like screaming and like laughing. And it's like, I are, I do this for a living. I know yeah. what, you know, what's going to happen. <laughs> so I, I can both be on the fantasy side of it, but I was always drawn to wanting to be the carny. I've always wanted to be a carny, whether it's been and you know performing as a drag queen, which I think were carnies, or you know putting on a haunted attraction, or you know designing a big sketch comedy vaudeville mm-hmm. show, or you know um, making movies. Even even the movies I make are kind of intended to be spectacles in a way. You know, yeah. I'm not very highbrow. I think brings us on really nicely to your next thing that made you queer. Person. So up next, we've got your person who is John Waters. Um, yes. The king of sleaze and camp and filth and a bit of gore too. Yeah. Um, how old were you when you discovered John Waters? Uh, I was probably about 13. You know, um, they were filming uh, the movie Hairspray in Baltimore. And uh, of course. Yeah. And so it was this first, you know, it was where John kind of uh, crossed over. Well, not kind of. He did. He crossed over. This was his first movie with with um, a studio um, backing him. And he was shooting it in Baltimore and bona fide stars like, you know, uh, Sonny Bono and people were coming to Baltimore. So mm-hmm. it was a it was a legitimate news event while they were shooting it. And 
So for me, even before I knew much else, it was just exciting to hear that there was a movie being made, you know, where I was growing up because that was so unusual. Um, but then when I discovered that uh, Divine was Divine and they were, you know, putting Divine in interviews and things on the local news, you know, where I grew up, mm. a local news channel, um, and people were, you know, being fans of divine and it was it was she was being celebrated you know she and john were being lauded wow. maryland because they were ma- you know they were making this movie about integration it was it was really life-changing it really blew my mind because it was only a few short steps to renting pink flamingos <laughs> at a place called mom yes, video of course and watching pink flamingos <laughs> i was I mean, really, truly, an entire world was opened up to me, you know, because it was just, I mean, it was just revolting and vile and, you know, it was horror in a whole new way. And it was making fun of the entire world I was growing up in, you know, it was it was making fun of Maryland normalcy, you know, Mm -hmm. and it just made me realize that I was going to be okay (laughs) yeah it's like a a, some uh, that window that important window of like oh wait someone's been through what i've been through and and they've come out of it laughing yes yes that's a great way to put it it really it really was like oh my god these i idolized all of them so quickly and i never saw them or met them but you know like growing up in maryland it was sort of like even watching movies like hairspray or you know, polyester um, and pink flamingos, these were locations that I recognized, you know, so it was, it was really, um, it really changed my life. And, you know, John's movies, I call it the John Waters immersion period. It was and his book shock value where he talks about um, his obsessions with Russ Meyer and Herschel Gordon Lewis. It was really kind of like, not only had a whole world been um, opened up to me, but I was able to kind of like immerse myself in it and and understand kitsch and queerness and camp mm-hmm. and, you know, cult cinema. And um, yeah, it was very, like, uh, you know, very formative, obviously. And that's not even, that's not like a soft, like a gentle toe dipping into the water. That is going right in at the deep end because Pink Flamingos, I mean... That's still probably the most shocking thing I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of a film that does what it does. And it's, what, how old is it? 50 years? Uh, God, it's got to be, well, close to it, yeah. 45? Yeah, yeah. because it was and- the early 70s. And yeah, it's, it's, it's probably going to have a 50th anniversary soon. And that is extraordinary. And so many people have... Um, made the mistake of trying to, you know, top it or imitate it. And it's like, no, you won't be able to. It was a moment in time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had the pleasure of getting to teach uh, cult cinema courses, you know, at San Francisco Art Institute. And um, I can show things like, I don't know, what's classically shocking, oh, like a clockwork orange or something that's classically, yeah. you know, kind of shocking. And I'll say that the students are kind of, you know, they're impressed by it. They understand why it's good, but they're desensitized to the kind of violence that you yes. know once shocked people about that film. 
Um, however, showing them pink flamingos like without fail, no matter how queer or how much drag they've seen, you know, there are the, 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 the things in that movie, you know, and it's funny because everyone talks about divine eating shit. And it's like, um, that's the least of your problems. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. We, by the time you make it to divine eating dog shit, you, you've really been, yeah, you know, you, put through it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that was amazing. That was John Waters. Um, we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back with more things that made Peaches Christ queer. Miss Quarantina Turner, got you feeling down? Never fear, divas, because the WOW Podcast Network is here! Coming this year are brand new episodes of your fave pods, such as mine, Girl Group Gossip, starring me, Cheryl Hall. Hi, Cheryl. How's your hole? Hole is worn out. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) To the triumphant return of the official RuPaul's Drag Race podcast. Or as we like to call it, she's already the And not to mention bringing um, tap dancing in. That was this close to being the name of the show. (laughs) And with brand new podcasts from RuPaul's Drag Race UK, Crystal, and season 12's Jackie Cox, the WOW Podcast Network will be the one-stop shop for all your drag-related podcast adventures. So for more deets, go to worldofwonder.com forward slash podcast. Moose! I am loving hearing all of these stories and I want to go on to the next thing on your list, which is your music or album. Music. And you've chosen Pet Shop Boys Behavior. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, um, again, as we were discussing earlier, I was very oblivious to the fact that most of the things I liked or that I was a fan of were, were, pretty, as fuck. Yeah, were pretty strong <laughs> indicators, you know. Um, <laughs> even if they weren't themselves, you know, queer, uh, you know, like Madonna, um, they were still, you know, big red flags. So I, you know, it, when I was a kid growing up, I was immediately drawn to like new wave and electronic style mm-hmm. music. And so Depeche Mode and yes. um, New Order and uh, yes. Erasure and uh, the Pet Shop Boys, you know, that that style of music and dance music, you know, way before I was old enough to go out to clubs or even really understand what queer culture was for adults. I would, that's what I was drawn to or attracted to. So it is an interesting mm-hmm. thing because I, I look back on it now and it's like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't learn any, my, my interest in those things had nothing to do with being out or meeting queer people. I just inherently was attracted to them. Yeah. And that, I mean, uh, Pet Shop Boys are wonderful. I'm a really big fan. I didn't discover the Pet Shop Boys until I was in my twenties. I don't think, except for like, you know, knowing a few songs beforehand. But when I, when I found them, I devoured their back catalog and um this right. album this album is great it's got being boring on it which oh what a song yeah it's it's such a great album and i was a fan before the album came out so much like depeche mode it was that i was a fan like in junior high and you know but when music like in high school became really um part of my identity yes and it was before alternative stuff had become popular it was before all the douchebags that i hated you know were into alternative music um you know we the freaks and weirdos there were those albums like music for the masses and behavior and 
the cures disintegration yes. where they're like these sort of watershed you know it's like the perfect era of those bands and that music and you know Susie Sue you know all of those they were at the height of their careers and they were making the best albums um, you know and Sinead O'Connor had just come out you know with you know the lion and the cobra and it was just it was uh, that album yeah like a perfect era for me for like alternative music now i bet everyone feels that way about their high school years you know so people younger than me they love all this 90s shit that i hate <laughs> so that, i mean do you, yes guilty i was a 90s uh i loved the shit stuff i loved hole i loved belly um yeah, all of that. But I'm teasing. It, when I got to my twenties, I was like, "Oh no, wait, wait! Something better was actually before." And it was it was Susie and the Banshees, and it was Sinead O'Connor. Um, and you know everything. I, I'm so jealous of you guys because, well, I'm especially jealous of like the the family gorgeous and you know those kids because they grew up in Manchester and you know New Order and the Smiths and mm-hmm. all the stuff that I love. I mean, I guess I should be. I think I'm, um, what is, what is Michelle Visage? What is that called when you're obsessed with Britain? An Anglophile. I'm an Anglophile. Yeah. yeah. I'm an Anglophile. Yeah. Cause so, you know, so much of what I loved is from the UK, you know? Um, so yeah, the Pet Shop Boys, but the reason I put behavior is because not only was it that great album, but they did, um, a tour called performance mm-hmm. and I was old enough to go. I was like 16 and they did it at, um, George Washington university in DC. And I was able to drive into the district, which, which was a big deal to drive to DC with my friend Holly. And we brought my younger sister for some reason and a friend of hers. And we went to see this concert called performance which i believe you can watch online but it's the pet shop boys doing theater basically like it every number had a every performance had a different set of costumes and backup dancers and of course famously the pet shop boys just stand there but there was this giant performance happening around them with visuals and you know things that like you know when they did it's a sin you know it was like there were monsters hanging from beds and they were in an insane asylum and it was wildly inspiring the other thing about it was I was there with my younger sister who was 14. I was 16 and I swear we must have been the only people there that weren't gay men wearing, you know, combat boots and, you know, this, the cutoff Daisy Dukes and like the cutoff shirts with the pink triangles and act up t-shirts and giant pearls and club kids. Like there were tons of club kids and the drag queens that were there. And I had never, ever seen anything like that. Wow. Like, I, you know, so, so for many, many reasons, the concert itself, but then realizing these were my people, you know, as a closeted teenager, you know, I, I it was, it, again, like the discovery of John Waters, you know, this was my next sort of mind-blowing, oh my God, you mean you can gather like this? Yeah. Let's move on. So we've got your last item, and it's your wild card. Wild card. And you have chosen uh, Tranny Shack in San Francisco. Yeah. Which is no, it's not called that anymore, but um, it was once in a once upon a time, and that was once upon a time an okay thing to call a place. Yeah. Um, so talk to me. You you've left Maryland, and you've moved to San Francisco. 
Yes. So I went to school in Pennsylvania, uh, which is close to Maryland. And uh, I studied film there and actually met John Waters while I was in, at, at Penn State. And part of meeting John Waters was uh, him saying, what are you going to do after you graduate? And, and I had hosted his visit there. It was a very shameless way to meet him, was kind of to bring <laughs> him uh, as a speaker, you know. Um, and I was, you know, part of a student group of filmmakers and a student group of queer activists. So I was able to put together a budget to bring him to speak at the university. And um, I said, well, I guess I'll move to New York or to L.A. because that's what you do when you're a young queer filmmaker. Yeah. And he, said, he said, have you ever thought of San Francisco? And he told me about the Kuchar brothers who were these queer uh, filmmakers making outrageous underground movies. And he also told me about the Coquettes. And this is before there was a documentary about the Coquettes. Um, that's how long ago it was. And uh, the Coquettes, he's described as this hippie sort of renegade group of drag hippies who lived in a commune and would do midnight movie shows before screenings of midnight movies. And he explained <laughs> that Sylvester was a member and that Divine and Mink would go there and perform in these shows. And I swear his description of this was so fantastic and incredible. And the way he talked about San Francisco was so lovely. Um, that it kind of led me down this road to watching the uh, Tales of the City, uh, which then really, you know, and, and the real world was on at the time. And the real mm -hmm. world the TV show was doing um, San Francisco. And so all of these things led me to think I'll move to San Francisco and I'll live there a couple of years and then I'll move to New York or uh, L.A. And I moved to San Francisco in 1996 and this brand new cabaret nightclub had started called Tranny Shack. Um, and at that time, um, that was really a term of, of, of endearment, of an, uh, of a, an inside group of people that was inclusive of uh, trans women and drag performers and trans women who were drag performers, but also cross-dressers. There were, there were men who came to Tranny Shack with their wives who were dressed as women. You know, it was mm. really like... We're, you're all freaks, and this is this is an umbrella term that we casually use to refer to one another. That that kind of uh, was was a, a large spectrum of people, of course. And I felt so at home there, and it was such a punk rock, um, art, artistic performance space. You know, it wasn't not that there's anything wrong with with traditional. Um, uh, drag performance and lip syncing, you know, I love all of that, but this place was, you know, where you could show up and, you know, do a blood and guts number and, you know, yeah. lip sync to, you know, heavy metal. And, you know, it just was, it was the, the, the mid nineties and, and it was grunge drag. It was very, very grungy. Um, and, you know, many of the people that were from that first couple years, um, ended up being, uh, creative collaborators for the rest of my life, which is why, you know, I have not left San Francisco 20, you know, six years later. And, you know, people like Animatronic, mm -hmm. who went on to, uh, you know, be in the Scissor Sisters, who went on to meet every British idol I've ever had, you know. Lana <laughs> has, you know, done a song with New Order. You know, she's she's partied with Susie Sue, you know. Um, yes. But, but many of us are still very, very close. And it was kind of where we went to school to learn how to do the kind of drag that we, you know, still do or that we, you know, and we were very experimental and, um, 
And yeah, it was, it was a magical, wonderful period. And uh, I'm really grateful for it. And it was very formative. Well, I, I think that kind of takes us up to present day Peaches Christ. So it's the San, the San Francisco legend born out of all of those wonderful things that made you queer. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for sharing all of that with me. Absolutely. It's been fun. Before you go, I would love to play a little game with you um, of called But Is It Queer? Okay. Is it queer? I'm going to give you some things, and we're going to decide definitively once and for all if they're queer or not. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to start with a... Uh, I'm going to start with this one. Uh, badminton. <laughs> What is that? Like the game that you play yeah, with the badminton. little rabbit? Yeah, badminton. Is it queer? I don't think so. You don't think so? I think I think tennis is not queer, but badminton is because it's so limp-wristed. <laughs> See, I would say that tennis is queer because of the women. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? Like the best, some of the best lesbians. That's a very good point. Ever have been, you know, tennis champions. Okay, so... Tennis is not queer unless you're a gay woman, and then it's queer. And badminton is only queer if you're a gay man. There we go. I agree with that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, what about um, the color purple? And I don't mean the film. I just mean actually the color. Oh, the color. Well, I was thinking you were going to say the film, and the film for sure. Definitely. Very queer. Yes, very, very queer um, for everybody. Uh, and the color purple itself, yes, absolutely. Lavender is a, is a queer staple. Definitely. But if it and unless it becomes royal purple, and then that's not queer, because monarchy, definitely not queer. Oh, right. That makes sense. But I agree with you. Lavender, very queer. Yeah. What about um, reed diffusers, like in your home? Uh, I would say that they're, I would say that that's queer. Yeah. Yeah. Guess maybe it depends on the scent. Maybe. But yeah, there's yeah. no there's no getting like, around it, is it? No, it's very like I just queer. Don't think if I went to a straight man's apartment, you would see them in the in the bathroom or something, you know. Whereas, right. You know, and there's actually something quite like penetrative about having a bunch of sticks shoved into a smelly hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's phallic for sure. Yeah. Uh okay, last one. Getting a degree in fashion marketing. <laughs> yes. I mean, can you imagine. I mean, I, again, I know we're talking because the way the way you look at it. But I, I, I just feel like, yeah, especially if we're talking about men. I just, I would love to see a, I would love to see the straight guy, the straight guy who's like getting my degree <laughs> in fashion marketing. I mean, I'm sure he yeah. exists, but he is a mon in the minority for sure. But then you have to, you have to ask the, about the capitalist implications of getting a marketing degree. That's and true. maybe that, maybe that ruins the queerness. That's true. There is, there is this sort of like evolving um, divide between gay culture and queer culture and i'm actually all for mm. it you know as as gay um you know because growing up when i went to that pet shop boys concert you know those were gay people and they were all queer but be that's because being out at that time was punk rock yeah you know now um you know gay people are 
can be so tired, you know, and so awful, you know, <laughs> just so in stuff. Um, so, you know, but queer people, you know, are, are my peeps, you know, and you're right. The, 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 the capitalist side of that isn't very queer. So maybe getting a degree in fashion marketing is gay, but getting a degree yes. in fashion design, queer. <laughs> yes, there you go. We're just going out and doing fashion design, not even going to school. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Just the school of life. Exactly. Yes. Well, there you have it. Those things definitively labeled once and for all. <laughs> yes. Good. Peaches, it's been so great having you. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And I hope we can, you know, meet in person someday soon, you know, when, when we get on the other side of this. Absolutely. I can't wait. And um, in the meantime, where can people find you? So I'm really, uh, social media is the best place to keep up with me. So I'm, you know, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and I'm verified, uh. you know, so it's, it's like not, not, not that there are tons of accounts out there impersonating me, but you know, it's pretty easy to figure out which one is mine. Thank you so much. Before I go, I just want to pass on some of the things that you said on Twitter made you queer. John Dvorak on Twitter says, Chris Evans in a whipped cream bikini made him queer. To be honest, I think Chris Evans has a lot to answer for. Uh, about 8 million of you said Lady Gaga performing paparazzi at the VMAs in 2009 made you queer, which I love. So specific. Such a moment. And I would say another 1,000 of you uh, probably said Madonna, Christina, and Britney having their gorgeous kiss. Bevis Moosin says Katie Lang and Andy Bell singing Enough is Enough at the Brits. And he goes on to say, I was very gay before then, but that kind of sealed my aesthetic. I just watched that clip and it was perfection. Um, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. God, lesbian and gay solidarity, like absolutely gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful voices. Well, that is it for us this week. We will be back next week with more of the things that made us queer. I would love to hear some of the things that made you queer. So tweet me with some and I will share them in a future episode. And if you like the episode, please tell your friends and share it. And if you didn't, well, keep your filthy mouth shut. Until next time, I've been Crystal. Stay sparkly, transparent, and cheap. Oh, and queer. Our theme song is Something Like Summer, graciously provided by Caveboy. This has been a World of Wonder production.